This is the New Books and Political Science Network. I'm Heath Brown. Today we'll be talking to Matt Grossman, Assistant Professor of Political Science at Michigan State University, about his new book, The Not-So-Special Interests, Interest Groups, Public Representation, and American Governance. This is a 2012 book published by Stanford University Press. This is a book that adds to the growing interest in studying interest groups, better understanding their influence on public policy and the relationship they have with the public, the media, and also the political process. This is a deeply empirical uh, take on the subject matter. It is well-researched, well-written, and has already come uh, with a lot of uh, interest in what Matt has to say. If you enjoyed the interview. So, Matt, welcome to the New Books in Political Science Network. Uh, let me just start out with a real brief introduction of who you are, and, and then we can get started talking about your book. Great. So you're an assistant professor of political science at Michigan State. Uh, you began your work at the university in 2007 after receiving your Ph.D. from UC Berkeley. Maybe before we get to your latest book, uh, you can tell us a little bit about what came before it. Uh, the focus of your dissertation and other research that you've had published before this latest book? Well, this uh, certainly comes out of my dissertation research uh, on uh, the uh, relative representation of different groups uh, in society by uh, interest organizations in Washington. Uh, I've also uh, done uh, quite a bit of work on campaigns and elections, and uh, all the work I've been doing recently is on uh, policy history since 1945. Uh, and uh, my other work on uh, interest groups uh, is about sort of the influence of interest groups on the advancement of legislation and the relationship of uh, interest groups and political parties. Okay, great. So, so let's let's talk about the latest book. So the title of the book is uh, "The Not So Special Interests: Interest Groups." Public Representation and American Governance. This is published by Stanford University Press. Before we actually get to the sort of the content of the book, I wonder if you can uh, recall or, or talk a little bit about the original pitch you made to Stanford University Press. Um, was it the full book or just an idea for the book? What was the sort of the start of the relationship with the publisher? Uh, by the time I uh, sent it to, to sent the proposal to Stanford, uh, the book was done. So uh, other than the revisions that uh, that I did in response to the reviews, it was a uh, it was a finished product by the time I got in touch with uh, them. But they've been great through the whole process. Did it end up roughly where you started? How how much of a rewrite or, or revisions did you have? Uh, it ended up uh, quite similar uh, to where it started. I think the, the primary revisions were about uh, sort of qualifying the argument to some extent, uh, acknowledging limitations, um, and trying to uh, draw more from uh, from other people's research uh, to, to get at the broader implications. Okay. So so let's, let's talk about the book itself. I, I wanted to start with some of the, the big academic battles that you your work wades into. Um, and so, so in chapter one, uh, on page 37, you, you have this statistic um, that, that uh, Olson is cited 20 times more than Truman. Um, I think this is sort of an interesting sort of piece of the field's history, the field of interest group research. 
What do you make of this this statistic uh, that you include there? Well, I mean, I think Olson has traveled so far from its original uh, uh, domain empirical reference of interest groups uh, in national politics. So uh, outside of the interest group subfield, I think probably Olson is the main main thing that people uh, think of, uh, but a sort of has an interesting history within uh, research on interest groups where sort of all the things we expected to be true uh, from uh, Olson uh, turned out not to be true of of national uh, American uh, interest groups. Um, And I try to make the case that uh, almost there there was plenty of things that Olson said that were right, but most of them were where he agreed uh, with David Truman, who he uh, sort of wrote the initial book against. Uh, And uh, the places where he differed from Truman uh, I think Truman has been proven uh, more right by time. So, what's why? Why has Olson, um, as you mentioned, sort of been at least sort of from from a distance within political science, been been so central? Whereas Truman has been sort of pushed to the side. I, I, I suspect some of the effort of your book is to move him back to the center of the debate. But what's your reading on 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 that dynamic? Well, I mean, I think, you know, Olson's argument is that, you know, even if uh, we have agreement on on public goods, it doesn't mean that we uh, will uh, generate, uh, you know, we'll we'll generate collective action. Um, And so that that's a basic argument that has implications for a whole lot of different fields, uh, whereas uh, Truman was really writing a much more contextual history of, of American interest groups. He meant for it to be a uh, to have important implications for, for democracy, but uh, it wasn't as easy to, to travel outside of the field. Um, and so uh, Olson's uh, theoretical analysis took on a life of its own, independent of uh, sort of the actual empirical uh, parts that, that he was talking about. And, and much of your book is actually um, providing some of the empirics um, that, that, that challenge Olson in many ways support uh, Truman. I'd like to get to that in just a little bit. Um, but I also wanted to talk sort of in, in setting the stage for, for your, your actual analysis, something that you, you said in chapter two of the book. Um, you talk a little bit about the, the thesis of, of Ralph Nader and Richard Rorty. Uh, the second is someone I, I don't know, and maybe you talk a little bit about that work. But uh, you write that... Um, that their thesis uh, long supposed that society could overcome interest group politics by mobilizing around shared interests that are, that are in the collective interest. You go on to argue that these uh, suppositions are naive. I wonder if you could expand a little bit on this argument that you make. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, this uh, is, is still uh, is still coming up. Uh, there's uh, several several new uh, books that just came out. One by uh, the notorious lobbyist uh, Jack Abramoff, who also makes mm-hmm. a somewhat similar uh, uh, argument that um, uh, you know we need to temper the interests that are represented uh, primarily by money uh, and uh, try to uh, instead replace them uh, with uh, people who are speaking on behalf of public interest ideas. Uh, and you know it's it's a tempting uh, argument, uh, but my book is mostly or is is largely about people who have attempted to uh, mobilize around either uh, large uh, public constituencies uh, of subsets uh, of the public or 
public ideas. Uh, and basically what I find is that uh, ideas are represented quite similarly to uh, uh, social group interests uh, in uh, the political system. Uh, and that either way, whether you're representing uh, people who share a social trait or uh, people who just share ideas, you're sort of subject to the same uh, determinants of success. You have to have a constituency uh, that's actively engaged in politics, uh, and you have to build uh, organizations uh, that last uh, and become known as the official representation of your constituency. So one of the things that allows you to, to challenge some of these, I guess what would be called sort of conventional notions of interest groups and, and sort of the dominant understanding is, is the data that you collect. And, and my reading is that you, you have a sort of an innovative approach to measuring, measuring and explaining both groups and, and constituencies. I wonder if you can describe a little bit of, of the method you used and the way in which you came at the issue of measurement in a way maybe that was different than what has come before and allowed you to do some things in this book that, that others haven't been able to do? Well, I think the, the big shift is that, uh, you know, we tend to, to think of organizations and their members uh, in, in current interest group research. And I try to shift back to the sort of old idea that there are these groups within society and they uh, mobilize uh, representatives to speak on their behalf. Uh, so I start with the claims of uh, the organizations in Washington about who they represent, uh, whether they represent a, an issue perspective or uh, a, a social group uh, or an occupational group. Uh, and the first thing I do is sort of just track all of these claims uh, to organize representation to, to find out who has someone claiming to speak on their behalf in Washington. Uh, and then uh, I, I go from that to uh, the, basic, the basic finding is that quite a few groups have someone uh, claiming to speak on their behalf, but of vastly different levels of organized representation. So then I try to start thinking about uh, uh, which groups are, are best represented by organized advocates, uh, by which I just mean they have more organizations, they have more staff speaking on their behalf, uh, and then uh, the, the people who claim to represent them are more involved in policymaking uh, and more prominent uh, in uh, political debates uh, in the media. Uh, so uh, I'm basically looking across groups to see who's best represented and why. And then the second part of the book looks at uh, which organizations uh, get uh, the status of uh, speaking on behalf of, of large public groups and tries to explain why uh, a small number of organizations uh, tend to generate most of the uh, attention and uh, get most of the role in, in the policymaking process. So on that last point that you made, um, one of the things or one of the ways you try to envision this, you do in, in the third chapter, where you compare the representation of interest groups to a zoo. Uh, this was a new sort of metaphor for me. And I, I wonder if you could describe how this metaphor came to you and, and what it helps you to clarify about this study that, that maybe was um, less clear when other metaphors are used. Um, I think in general, it's trying to get at the idea that um, people sort of assume that kind of diversity of type uh, is the same as as broad representation. And I'm trying to challenge that notion by I think, thinking of entering a zoo where no one would question that, uh, you know, you see <laughs> you see a stunning diversity of animals, uh, but uh, that in no way means that what you're seeing is a faithful representation uh, of the animal kingdom. It doesn't uh, represent how many of each animal there are. It doesn't uh, treat all animals equally. 
so my claim is that uh, we have a lot of diversity uh, in uh, the advocacy system. Uh, there are uh, all kinds of, of groups that have someone claiming to speak on their behalf. Uh, but that, to me, is, is quite a separate question from whether groups are equally represented or uh, whether organizations uh, are, are e- have equal capacity uh, to represent those groups. Because I think the first is true. There's a huge amount of diversity, uh, but there's uh, also uh, huge inequalities. Uh, not to belabor this this metaphor, but I and this is a bit of a tangent, but I, I did want to ask you a little bit about your non-academic uh, writing. And, and so you, you've done writing, uh, sort of blog writing for the monkey cage, um, which I assume has no connection to your use of the, the zoo metaphor. <laughs> but I wonder if you could talk a little bit about you're, you're trying to communicate similar points in both your academic writing and also this, this somewhat um, not, not immediately academic writing in, in the world of blogging. Uh, do you how do you approach the these two different outlets? Uh, is is your approach similar, or what's what's the differences? I think the messages are are pretty similar. I think I, I assume a different knowledge about uh, about the current uh, literature and about uh, different interests in terms of of what uh, will stimulate people's uh, uh, concerns. So, for example, in the in the blogging, I think uh, probably the the media bias. Uh, the post about what explains media bias and my post about um, why Jews are better represented than Catholics uh, stimulated more uh, sort of response and interest, although people like the other uh, more general posts. So I try to sort of pick out the things that I think would uh, be interesting to family and friends uh, mm-hmm. out of my uh, out of my academic work. But it really does attempt to make the same uh, point. So. You know, when I'm talking about the relative representation of Jews and Catholics, I see that as a, a one comparison in a broader uh, question about what groups are, are best represented and why. Uh, and when I look at uh, what explains uh, why some uh, organizations uh, get mentioned a lot more uh, in the news media than others, uh, I again see that not uh, in the context of, of media bias, uh, but in the context of what organizations are, are more prominent and more involved in policymaking overall, uh, and find that the media uh, tends to uh, follow the same uh, kinds of dynamics as the policymaking system. So, um, one of the things that, that you do uh, empirically is look at is, and this isn't um, uh, necessarily a tactics book. Like, like there have been written before, but, but you do describe some of the tactics that, that groups use and, and sort of in the, in the, the interest of, uh, talking about social media, you, you talk about, um, the way that advocacy organizations use their websites. And what you find is that they by and large are using their websites to mention pending congressional legislation, but very, very rarely, uh, talk about uh, administrative action, uh, the work of the bureaucracy. Uh, why this skew towards Congress? Well, and that matches, it's not just in their website, that matches the, the sort of overall distribution of involvement as well. I find that uh, involvement of interest groups uh, in, in congressional hearings, for example, is much uh, more uh, representative of the broader population in the advocacy community than is involvement in administrative agency rulemaking. Um, and I think that confirms the the more basic finding of interest group research that uh, Congress is is the the first target, uh, and uh, people learn 
uh, about uh, organizations learn about administrative agency action uh, uh, <laughs> later. Uh, it tends to require uh, a little more expertise and, and long uh, period. Um, but I guess I would say that my broader point about uh, tactics and strategy uh, isn't that they don't matter at all, but it's that it's it's hard for a decision, one uh, set of decisions to matter in a specific policy debate when the relative prominence and involvement of different groups is so skewed. That is, you know, if you have uh, these some organizations that are, you know, invited to, to testify hundreds of times and some that are invited to testify once every few years, uh, you know, the chance that a tactical decision uh, is going to uh, uh, differentiate uh, those two organizations is pretty low. Uh, so I think um, I, I try to look at what organizations are doing and which ones, uh, which tactics are most are common. Uh, but I think my, my uh, broader claim is that uh, it's hard for uh, tactics uh, to matter much in a system of, of such inequality in, uh, in representation and influence. And, and this really does lead to, in, in the book, one of your next points, um, which is about the, the private or, or public side of lobbying. And the, the public perception, certainly, is that most influence is subterranean. That's, that's sort of the, the, from a distance, what, what people would think about what interest groups do. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what your findings are and what, what the book has to say about how, how public or private interest group influence or, or advocacy group influence is in Washington. Is this, is this a behind-the-scenes situation, or, or, or most of the ways in which advocacy happens is, is, is really quite public? I guess I'd say it's somewhere in between because the, uh, it, you know, it depends. If, if you think a, a congressional hearing that is, is actually recorded and transcribed, but that not very many people are listening to is a, is a public encounter, it's public in the sense that researchers can, uh, can find it. Uh, it's not public in the sense that, you know, the, the American public or the major news media is paying attention to what goes on there. So I would say, and the same thing's true in administrative agencies. You know, there are records of lots of this activity, uh, and uh, there, there's also um, activity that isn't recorded, but at least what I've found for advocacy organizations is it tends to be pretty heavily associated with what is recorded. So if you talk to uh, congressional committee staffers about who talks to them and then you look at who testifies, pretty similar list. Same thing in administrative agencies. Uh, so in that sense, it's discernible. We can go and find out uh, who is most involved in policymaking. Um, but it, it's not public in the sense that uh, that most people are paying attention to it. Um, and I do think part of the the capacity for influence of, of interest groups is that uh, they're the people who, who care most uh, about their issues. And so they're the people who've been there for a long time uh, and uh, are likely to uh, pay a lot of attention to uh, small changes in, in government action. And so is this um, is this relationship sort of between the public and the private linear in the sense that that, you know, for every time you see someone. If, as you mentioned, is if giving testimony is public, even if people don't watch. But let's sort of take that as as a relatively public form of influence. Is this linear, or is the situation that there's such positive returns that you know, for every time a group gets called in front to give testimony, 
they're they're talking behind the scenes three, four, five times, and so a group that that never participates in the public setting is just almost it would be shocking to see them ever participate in in that private setting. Yeah, I mean, to me, the the main uh, issue is just the, the the extreme skew in in involvement and uh, and prominence. So, you know, it, like you said, there are just some groups who are who are always testifying, and some groups who are never testifying. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's not always the case that you know every group that testifies a lot is also talking to those members behind the scenes. Um, but it's 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 quite unlikely that you get a group that uh, has no uh, a prominence or involvement uh, that that you know makes uh, uh, is 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 behind the scenes pulling all of the strings. I think uh, those uh, those stories uh, to me seem unlikely in a situation in which uh, some groups are just so much more involved and prominent than others. Now, your book isn't all statistics and all numbers. You you tell some some interesting stories and, and narratives, and one of the stories that you tell is in chapter four related to the AARP as a way to il- illustrate your theory of institutionalized pluralism. Uh, I wonder if you could sort of relate that story of AAR- AARP as a way to 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 tell the story of your the, the central theory of your book. So what is AARP? What is, how is it different than what we might think? Well, I view this as sort of a, a hard uh, test of, of my theory because the uh, it's AARP is known as an organization that, you know, essentially starts uh, uh, trying to, to sell uh, insurance and uh, is able to uh, also became a, a prominent uh, representative of, of the elderly uh, in American politics. And so in some in, in sort of the, the, the face sense, it fits Olson's story. Uh, political uh, activity is a byproduct of of its insurance business, um, but I I don't uh, see that as a very compelling uh, story of 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 how AARP came to prominence. It's an interesting story of organizational development, um, but in terms of why uh, AARP is uh, in the place of speaking on on behalf of the elderly in American politics, I uh, I believe that if it wasn't AARP, there would be another organization uh, that would be quite prominent and would be uh, playing the role of representing older Americans and uh, uh, also uh, (laughs) safeguarding uh, their primary federal programs, Medicare and Social Security, uh, uh, from uh, uh, from attacks. So there's a big role to be played in the political system, as I see it, and AARP plays that role. Uh, One of the uh, piece of evidence that I, I tried to, to point to uh, in, in telling this story is about the, the conservative organizations that have attempted to challenge it. There are sort of three organizations that come up from, from time to time, but they're really shells uh, for uh, people to, to put money forward uh, to try to challenge AARP from, uh, from now and then. So, for example, one of them you know, would have uh, several uh, several thousand dollars spent on lobbying in one year, and then not spend anything on lobbying for the next five years. And another one of them uh, spent uh, thousands of dollars in one political campaign, and then didn't spend anything for the election before or the election after. Uh, and so, what I'm trying to demonstrate there is that it can be a site for occasional resource mobilization. Um, an organization can just be you know a name that's used to to direct money, uh, but that is not going to achieve 
anywhere near the same influence in the political system as having an organization which is the taken-for-granted representative of the elderly, which is regularly called upon every time Medicare and Social Security are up for debate uh, and uh, uh, anytime the media needs someone to speak on behalf of uh, uh, the interests of the elderly in American politics. Uh, so um, I view these organizations as, as being institutionalized, as being hard to displace, and especially hard to displace if uh, you're trying to do it with sort of occasional resource mobilizations around specific uh, objectives rather than about the, the permanent uh, representation of a social group in the political system. Now, your, your use of insta- institutionalized pluralism, pluralism, as you explain in the book, is, is a little different than what some others have, have sort of def- used it to de- define. I, w- I wonder if you could just sort of um, compare it to what the other sort of conventional definition of the term is. Uh, well, it's, it's used in, in going public uh, as a term about, you know, how uh, politicians accumulate coalitions of, of social groups. Um, and so I'm, I'm limiting its usage to the advocacy system, but I'm saying that within the advocacy system, you really do have uh, representatives of uh, public constituencies who are uh, taken for granted uh, for playing that role in the political system uh, and who uh, regularly get to voice their concerns with uh, reporters and policymakers uh, as the representatives of uh, public constituencies, either of social groups or of uh, a general issue perspective, uh, like uh, a single issue perspective. Uh, and so my uh, I, I just didn't want uh, people to think I'm, I'm challenging research on the presidency since my book is, is not really about uh, about that uh, dynamic. Uh, my book is just about uh, what the the advocacy system uh, represents, but within that system, it does seem clear to me that uh, that that some groups uh, have gained the status as representing some organizations have gained the status of representing uh, broad uh, public constituencies uh, and uh, do so repeatedly in the policymaking system. And that really does take us to kind of the the, the takeaways from the book, and and I think before we maybe get to sort of a conversation about the takeaways. Um, you could read a little bit about uh, a little bit from the the end of the book um, about some of the the, the conclusions uh, that you reach. Could you read a little bit? Sure. I actually selected uh, almost the very end, so uh, I'll uh, I'll read a, a, a bit from the. Okay, but and no spoilers. <laughs> uh, civil society and civic engagement are commonly thought to be alternatives to the dreaded special interests. In a sense, social organization designed to represent public interests and ideas is distinct from the political activities of corporations and governmental units, justifying this opposition. Yet each set of public interests and ideas will only be partial, and each set of leaders will be only tenuously connected to the constituencies that they claim to represent. This partiality does not occur because of any fundamental fault of the leaders or their ideas, but arises from the basic nature of the problem of factions. People disagree and are stimulated to be involved in politics to advance their agendas over those of others. Advocacy organizations owe their prominence and involvement in governance to the public principles or subpopulation interests that they claim to advance. They endure the same opportunities and difficulties in organizing to influence collective decision-making that all other political factions face. Factional mobilization of all shapes and sizes has produced an advocacy system in Washington that includes a great diversity of interests and ideas, 
but promotes them at radically different levels in the national conversation and the policymaking processes. The differences in social and political characteristics among public groups produce an advocacy system that represents some groups more than it does others. The rituals practiced by political elites going through the motions of bringing everyone into the process empower some leaders to speak on behalf of these public groups and make some organizations into institutions with staying power in American governance. Organized advocates and policymakers do not ignore the broad expectation that democracy requires listening to everyone. Because it is impossible to meet in practice, Americans have collectively institutionalized an advocacy system that largely substitutes for public representation and policy deliberation. Thank you for doing that. So what's next? Is there uh, a next book project that's underway, or are you at the early points of a new research uh, uh, project? Uh, There is a a next book project underway. Uh, It's about uh, American policy history since 1945. I have been uh, reading uh, about more than 200 uh, books on the history of uh, public policy in particular issue areas. Uh, And uh, what I do is uh, look for what they say were the most uh, important events in policy history in all branches of government, uh, and then what their explanations are for why uh, those policy changes uh, were enacted. Uh, And so I try to tell a story about uh, why uh, policy change uh, happens uh, when it happens, uh, what issue areas uh, tend to see uh, policy changes for what reasons, uh, in sort of a, a very uh, broad treatment of policy history since 1945. Well, I look forward to reading the next book. Uh, I'm sure that's going to be as compelling as this. Thank you very much for taking a little time today. I really do appreciate it. Thank you again for listening to this interview with Matt Grossman on the New Books and Political Science Network. I hope that you have the chance to read his book and in the future come back to listen to future interviews. Thank you.